You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Acts 13, verse 48. You're going to need to have that text open in front of you so that you can look at it. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, for some of you, that is going to stick right here like a fish bone caught sideways. And you're not going to be able to swallow that. It's going to go down tough, if at all, and you are going to gag on it. Why is that? Probably a number of different reasons. For one, it may be that your being here last week and today constitutes perhaps your first, maybe your only exposure to the idea that God in His sovereign grace elects and chooses those who will be saved. It may be that you have been a Christian for 20 years and have sat in front of pulpits for 20 years and have never in your life heard a sermon on a text like Acts 13.48. That would be because texts like that and messages like this one are avoided like the plague in most pulpits today. Pastors do not want to speak on subjects like this because it is hard work and it is hard to swallow. But it is true. And one of the blessings of going through a Bible book and dealing with every text as it comes up in the order in which it comes up is that you must address texts like this when they come up and deal with them in their context and explain them as they are written. We can't just skip over it. Because if we just jump to Acts chapter 14, instantly this morning you'd say, hey, you you skipped a paragraph at the end of Acts chapter 13. We were here through verse 47. What about verse 48? Verse 48 says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It may be that you came here this morning and you have a preconceived notion of what election is. You have been raised to think of divine sovereignty in a certain way. You have been raised to think of God's electing choice in a certain way. You have built straw mans that you have found easy to knock down over the years. You think you understand biblical doctrine of election, but you don't. And so you come here and you read verses like this, that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and this doesn't set well with you. And I would just say that it's going to be this verse and a dozen others like it. It just doesn't set well with you. It may be that you have been raised to think or that you have come to the conclusion that this whole idea of election is just unclear in the Scriptures. You really don't know what to think of it. You really don't think it's that big of an issue, that big of a doctrine, and so it's better off ignored. And so we will just skip over it. We'll just play lip service to it. We will read those verses in Scripture and put that on a list of texts to study sometime when I have a lot of time. But it's just unclear. We're really not sure what God says about it. Or maybe you just don't understand the nature of God and you think that He is altogether like you and that God would not do anything that you wouldn't do and that God is only free to do those things that you understand. Or it may be that this does not set well with you for this reason and I think that really if we were to get rid of all of the dross and boil down all of the reasons why this sticks in our throat and boil it down just to its essence, it would be this. 
The doctrine of sovereign divine election assaults our human pride. It assaults our human pride. We do not like to be told that we were so dead in our trespasses and sins that God had to have chosen us or we would never have repented. We do not like to be told that we were so lost, so hopeless, so desperate, so depraved, that we could not change our situation, we could not alter our nature, we could not do good, and we could not believe if it were not for divine grace. We don't like to be told that. It assaults our human pride. See, friends, the problem with our understanding of divine election, the problem with us swallowing all of this, is not that it is unclear in Scripture. It is that it is unpalatable. It's not that you and I cannot understand what is written. We can understand it. The problem is that you and I cannot accept what is written. That's really where it lies. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Is that unclear? That's not unclear. Friends, I I fail to see the fog in that verse. That is clear. Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Is that unclear? That's not unclear. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, I give thanks for you because God chose you from the beginning for salvation. Is that unclear? That's not unclear. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. We are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Appointed to obtain salvation. That's not unclear. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, verse 10. We are called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to the grace which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. That's not unclear. Then you're going to stumble on Romans 9. Ooh, that's a terrible text, friends. That's a harsh text. It does not depend on the man who wills. It does not depend on the man who runs, Paul says, but on God who has mercy. And so he said to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this purpose, that I might harden your heart and demonstrate my glory throughout the earth. And then Paul says, so he shows mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Is that unclear? Romans 8, verse 29, those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Crystal clear, the doctrine of election. The problem is not that it is unclear. The problem is that it is unpalatable. We don't like it. I would quote Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon titled Divine Sovereignty, He said this, There is no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their Master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of His own hands, the throne of God and His right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, still quoting Spurgeon, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. 
Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop, to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow Him to be in His almondry, to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His creatures as He sees fit without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed, then it is that we are cursed, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on His throne is not the God they love. They love God anywhere better than they do when He sits with His scepter in His hand and His crown upon His head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach and it is God upon His throne that we trust. End quote. Amen. But it's not unclear. As many, Luke says, as were appointed to eternal life, believe. Acts 13.48 now that statement comes in the context of discussing, Luke is, the different responses that there were to the gospel. Acts chapter 13 contains that sermon that Paul and Barnabas have delivered in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. The apostle Paul has brought his hearers to the point of making a decision. And he has called upon them to do so. And that ends verse uh, 41. Then there are these different responses to the gospel that take up the rest of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 47, Luke tells us what the response of unbelief was like. And when those responded by not believing and rejecting the gospel, the apostle Paul laid the responsibility for their decision on their shoulders and said, you repudiate the gospel, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're going to the Gentiles. And he quotes the Old Testament to show that God has called him to take the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth to the Gentiles. Then we get to chapter 40, uh, verse 48 of chapter 13, and the apostle, uh, Dr. Luke begins to describe the response of belief and those who believed. And that takes us all the way to the end of the chapter. And we're going to notice this morning three things about those who believed. First, in verse 48, that those who believed were the elect. Second, verse 49, those who believed were evangelizing or were involved in evangelism. And third, those who believed were encouraged, verses 50 through 52. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the second two points first, and then we're going to jump back up and we're going to unpackage verse 48 and look at what it says. Now, however you have come here this morning, whatever you're thinking, whatever your preconceived notions about divine election, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility are, I just ask you to do this this morning. Ask yourself this question. What does the text which rests in front of my eyes teach me? What does the text, what I am reading in verse 48, what does it say? Not what do I want it to say. Not what would make me comfortable if it said it. Not what fits in with my preconceived notions. But what does the text say? So let's begin with point two. Those who believed... They were evangelizing. Verse 48 says that some believed. They rejoiced. They glorified the Lord. And verse 49, the apostle Luke says, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So those who were involved in believing, those who had believed, who had been appointed to eternal life and believed, they were spreading the word of God throughout the whole region. They themselves became witnesses. 
and began this act of evangelism. It just mushroomed like a fire that was started that couldn't be put out. It began to spread. Now let's stop for a second and let me ask you this question. If only those who are appointed to eternal life believe, why is it that we bother evangelizing? Yet that is exactly what the new disciples did. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed and they spread the word. They told others. They witnessed. They evangelized. The statement, those who were appointed to eternal life believed, comes in the context of evangelism and missions. Paul is on a missionary journey. He has preached an evangelistic sermon in the synagogue. He has called upon men and women to repent of their sins and to place their faith in the Messiah for salvation and for freedom from all things which you could not be freed from under the law of Moses. He has called upon them. He has witnessed them. He has witnessed to them, evangelized them, asked them to believe, laid the responsibility on their shoulders. Then we get this statement, those who were appointed believed. And then Luke jumps right back to the idea of evangelism. They started to spread the word. Friends, there is no context in the world where the subject of divine sovereignty, God's choice, and God's election are more natural than in the context of evangelism and missions. In fact, I'm convinced of this. The more you understand divine sovereignty, the more you understand the biblical doctrine of election, the more passionate you will be and the more confident you will be in sharing your faith and the more committed you'll be to missions. You doubt that? The Apostle Paul is the author in the New Testament who has given us the bulk of our understanding about election. Half of Romans chapter 8, all of Romans chapter 9, almost every book that Paul wrote, he mentioned divine election and divine sovereignty. It is Paul who started missionary activity in Acts chapter 13. It is Paul who went on three missionary journeys, a one-way evangelistic trip to Rome, and then between his imprisonments was involved in other missionary activities and planting churches. That's the Apostle Paul. He's the one who is most committed to the doctrine of divine sovereignty and God's electing choice. He is the one who made such clear statements as God has mercy on whom He has mercy and He hardens whom He hardens. The more you understand it, the more committed you will be to missions, to sharing your faith, and the more confident you'll be in your evangelism and the more you'll long to evangelize. Listen, if your understanding of divine sovereignty and God's election rules out human choice, rules out missions, rules out evangelism, then listen, you've missed it. You have misunderstood it. Somebody has for you perverted the doctrine of election. And what you believe is an error. That's wrong. They were evangelizing. Second, they were encouraged. Verse 50 of chapter 13 says that the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now these hostile Jews who have rejected the gospel and repudiated the gospel have not just two missionaries on their hands, but a whole slug of people who have responded to the gospel and believed and started to spread the message. So what do you do? Well, you kick the ringleaders out of town. So the hostile Jews incite some of the God-fearing or devout women who are in the synagogue. Apparently they had some pulls with these leading men in the city. Maybe they were their husbands or somehow connected to them. And so they lead this persecution to get Paul and Barnabas driven out of the city. And so Paul and Barnabas, as they are leaving, they shake the dust off their feet, which was a Jewish custom symbolizing a repudiation of person or things. 
For instance, the Pharisees, when they would come back into the land of Israel from Samaritan land or from Gentile land, they would knock the dust off of their feet lest they defile Jewish dirt with Gentile dirt. And that was their way of repudiating or renouncing that which they were leaving behind. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're essentially saying, you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You choose damnation, so be it. We wash our hands, we're knocking the dust off our feet, and we're moving onward. And they went to Iconium. And the disciples who were in Pisidian Antioch had obviously been taught enough to know that joy does not depend on your circumstances because they're facing persecution. They're facing those hostile Jews who didn't believe. Their mentors, their teachers have been run out of town, and yet they are continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were encouraged, not only evangelizing, but also encouraged. Now let's jump back up to verse 48 and unpack this doctrine, this idea of those who believed were the elect. Now you say, Jim, you just rushed over verses 49 to 52 so that you could spend three quarters of a sermon on election. Don't you think that's a bit lopsided? Don't you think you're giving undue emphasis to one side of this as opposed to the other? Let me just say this. I've spent the last four weeks emphasizing human choice and human responsibility. The way I see it, I could preach three more doctrine, three more sermons on election before I even break even on this subject. So we are going to unpack this because verse 48 is one of the clearest, most humbling, most encouraging, most motivating, most awe-inspiring, God-glorifying doctrines in all of the Bible. Look at it again. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, that Paul and Barnabas were now taking the gospel to the Gentiles, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They believe the message that Paul and Barnabas have brought them. And they are rejoicing and they are glorifying the word of the Lord. And Luke says that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now once again, answer this question. What does the text in front of me teach me? Acts 13.48, let's break it down. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed that Saturday as Paul was preaching? How many? I don't know a number, but I know it's the exact same number as those who were appointed to eternal life. As many as had been appointed, that's who believed. Were there some who had been appointed that did not believe? Apparently not. Luke says, as many as had been appointed, believed. Were there some who had not been appointed that believed? As many as had been appointed, believe. I don't know what the number of converts that day was, but it is the same number of people that God had appointed to eternal life. And it is the same people that God had appointed to eternal life. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Not only does Scripture teach that God appoints some to salvation, but it also teaches that all those that God appoints to salvation will be saved. Just in case you doubt that, I would just encourage you sometime to sit down and and read through John chapter 6, the words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. John 6, 37-40 Of all that the Father gives to me will come to me. There is a number that of people that are given from the Father to the Son. 
And it's not all people that are given by the Father to the Son, or all people would come to the Son, because Jesus said, all that are given will come to Me. Do all people come to Christ? No. All that are given by the Father to the Son come to Christ. Further, Jesus says, of all that the Father has given to Me, all of them will come. I will not cast any of them out. I will not lose any of them. And all of them who come will behold the Son and believe on Him. And all who believe I will give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And all that believe and all that have eternal life I will raise up on the last day. That is not unclear. Of all that the Father has given to me, I will lose none. Is it possible for those, for somebody who has been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, appointed to eternal life, granted grace in eternity past, to suffer the torments of hell and to perish, having never believed on Christ for salvation? Is that possible? Is it possible that Christ is such a failure as a Savior that He cannot save those that the Father has given to Him? Is it possible that He is such a failure as a husband that He would lose a member of His bride to eternal flames? Is that possible? That this great temple of God in which the Spirit of God dwells, made up of living stones, should stand in eternity in the glory of Christ, missing some stones that God had chosen in Christ? Possible? Forget it. Of all that the Father has given to me, Jesus said, I lose none. All of them will come to me. All of them will behold me. They will believe. I will give all of them life and I will raise all of them up at the last day. In other words, what Jesus set out to do, that is to come and save God's elect, He has done perfectly. He's not a failure. Is it possible that somebody who has never been chosen in Christ, never been appointed to eternal life, never been granted grace in Christ from eternity past, could enjoy the glories and the bliss of heaven? and freedom and forgiveness of sins. That he might stand in the presence of God and say, I am here in heaven today, having never been chosen, but I chose you, having never been appointed, but I chose you, and here I am, the unelect, the unappointed, the unpredestined, having never been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, here I stand in the glories of heaven, enjoying the bliss of forgiveness in the presence of Christ, having never been appointed to it. Is that possible? Forget it. What does the text say? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Is that still caught right here? It only gets better. As many, we've fleshed out what that means. How about appointed to eternal life? The word appointed there is the Greek word tasso. It means literally to ordain, to determine, or to appoint. And that's the way in which Luke uses it in this context. To ordain, to determine, or to appoint. And that is how it's translated in most modern Bible translations. As many as were appointed, the NASB says, to eternal life believed. Further, not only does the word mean to ordain or to appoint someone or something, or literally to enroll their names in something, but the word is in the passive voice, indicating that those who believed are acted upon. In other words, it's not in the middle voice, which would indicate that by believing, they appointed themselves to something. It's in the passive voice, not in the active voice, so they didn't do the appointing. They were appointed by somebody else. And it is in the pluperfect tense, which indicates it is something that happened in the past, which has relevance to the present, 
but doesn't continue in the presence. In other words, God didn't appoint and then continue to appoint. It's The appointing happens at a point of time in the past. So what is Luke saying? Luke is saying there is a time in the past when some were appointed by God to eternal life and they believed. Now someone will say, well, hold on a second. Maybe the appointing happens when I believe. I believed and at that minute I was appointed so that all those who were appointed believed. Kind of flips it back and forth. We have fun with it that way, right? I believed and at the moment of my belief, I was appointed so that God only really ends up appointing all those who will believe anyway. That turns the whole verse upside down. Luke is absolutely crystal clear in the wording that he uses, the tense that he uses, and the voice that he uses. He wants us to understand that this appointing is not our work. It is not determined by our belief. It is the other way around. Those who were appointed believed. The believing results from the appointing, not vice versa. Now, the last phrase, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, Believed. You can't skip that word. Believed. Because right at about this moment, some of you may be sitting there saying to yourself, Oh, so God just appoints some to eternal life? So we're all just a bunch of puppets, marionettes on a string? We're just a bunch of robots? Belief is not necessary. Faith is not necessary. We have no real choice. Man's not responsible. Man doesn't choose. No. That's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what I believe. And for those of you who may be saying, yeah, but that's what a Calvinist believes. No, that is not what a Calvinist believes. In fact, I've never met a Calvinist who believes that, and I know a lot of Calvinists. That's not what a Calvinist teaches. That's not what the Scriptures teach. When the Apostle Paul was in, in Acts chapter 16 in that jail with, the, with the Silas, the earthquake came and the Philippian jailer came running in and he said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul said? He said, well, if you're appointed to eternal life, you're going to believe anyway. And if you're not appointed, there's nothing I can do to make you believe. So, hey, don't worry about it. That's not what he said, is it? Paul, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Paul didn't talk to him about election. He called for him to believe. He who believes in the Son has life, and he who does not believe in the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him would be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith. That's the agency. And even that's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that we can't boast. Is belief necessary? It's essential. No man, no woman, nobody is saved apart from belief. You must exercise faith. You must believe the message of the gospel. You must believe that you're a sinner, that Christ died for your sins, and that His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay the price that you owed to God for your sin debt, and that He rose again the third day, and He ever lives to make intercession for you. You must believe all of that and place your faith on all of that. That is the balance of the message. All those who are appointed to eternal life, divine sovereignty, do what? Believe. Human responsibility. And Luke balances those two concepts all the way through the book of Acts. Let me remind you of a couple places where he's done it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, on the day of Pentecost, speaking to the people who had crucified the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Peter says, This man, that is Jesus, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
You nailed him to a cross and put him to death. That's divine sovereignty and his human responsibility. He was delivered up, crucified by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That is God's sovereign plan. It was predetermined, destined to happen. Nothing could stop it. Slain before the foundation of the world. You nailed him to a cross. You're responsible. God is sovereign. You are responsible. Acts chapter 4, after being released from the Sanhedrin, the apostles go back. They begin to pray and they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. These are the ones who are responsible for it, Peter says. And then Peter prays this, To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Those two things are presented in Acts chapter 2. They are presented side by side in Acts chapter 4. And they are presented side by side here in Acts chapter 13. God is sovereign. He is the king of creation, the king of salvation. Nobody is saved apart from his divine appointment, his sovereign choice, and his wonderful grace. And yet, man is responsible for his sin. You say, why doesn't the Bible resolve that conflict? Because there is no conflict. You don't need to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are friends. There's only a conflict in our finite, little, sinful, fallen, wicked thinking. That's where the conflict is at. But in the mind of God, it's crystal clear. He is sovereign and man is responsible. And those who perish, perish Not because God has not chosen them. They perish because they choose damnation. It is their choice. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but they are those which testify of me. And you are, listen, unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The problem, Jesus said, is that you're unwilling to come to me. You choose damnation. You've chosen rejection. And nobody will be able to stand before God and say, I can't go to heaven because you never chose me. You never elected me. You never appointed me. No, it's not the way it works. God says it's your choice. You made that choice. That's what you determined. Your will be done. You can perish. Yet those who are in heaven, they are appointed to eternal life. There's no conflict there. That is the sovereignty of God, and it is the responsibility of man. All of us get what we want in the end anyway, the elect and the non-elect, so I don't know why anybody would complain about this. The elect get what they want. They want eternity apart from God. They hate Him. They want to be in hell. The the non-elect, they hate God. They want eternity apart from God. The elect want to go to heaven. In the end, everybody gets what they want. Hellions are in hell because that's where they want to be. That's where they chose to be. That's what they want. Now, it's not pleasant being there. If it were pleasant, they wouldn't call it hell. It is hell. And they do not like their agony, but what they hate worse than their agony is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they cannot stomach the idea of repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ and loving God and others more than themselves. And so they get exactly what they want, which is to be away from God. For that is the choice they have made their whole lives. 
And in the end, God says, this is what you choose, this is what you want, this is what you will receive. And hellions are in hell because the alternative to be in heaven with a pure heart and to love God and others more than themselves is simply reprehensible. And the elect, well, we're in heaven. Are we dragged there kicking and screaming against our will? I don't want to go to heaven. But you're elect. I don't care if I'm elect. I don't want to go to heaven. Dragged into heaven and there you sit, moping and pouting for all of eternity. I didn't want to be here. I had no choice in the matter and God elected me. That's not it. Nobody is dragged into hell kicking and screaming. Nobody's dragged into heaven kicking and screaming. Everybody in the end, the elect and the non-elect, get exactly what they want and what they choose. And that's how it all cashes out. Some people think of election as if God is some ogre up in heaven saying no to people. No, he can't come. Jesus said, of all the fathers given me, they'll all come to me, and I will not cast any of them out. As if God's sitting up in heaven saying, no, you can't come, and there are throngs of people down here on earth who are clamoring to get in. Oh, they so desperately want salvation. So desperately want the righteousness of Christ. So desperately want to repent. Want to repent of their wickedness and trust in Christ and have their heart purified. And go to be forever with God in Christ for all of eternity. And yet God has not chosen them. And so they sit on the outside crying and weeping and wishing they could get in. But God is such a cruel ogre and He hasn't chosen them so they can't be saved. Come on. Come on. That's not the way it is. Election is not about keeping people out. It's about getting people in. We were all out. And God in His grace reached down and chose some of us. All to the glory of His precious grace. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. Now you say, is this just an anomaly that we pick up in the book of Acts? Some editorial gloss that Luke forgot to edit out of there? Did he forget to complete the sentence? Is there something wrong with just this? Is this the only place where we run across verses like this? Or does the rest of the New Testament teach such a thing? And the answer is that you can hardly read a a single book of the Bible and not run into this concept of the elect and the election. Jesus mentioned God's elect in the Gospels. Paul mentions it in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Nearly every book he writes, he mentions it. You cannot hardly read the New Testament without stumbling over verses that assault our human pride and remind us of just how dependent we are upon the gracious choice of God. Ephesians 1, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, all to the praise of His glorious grace, not because of anything in us. Titus chapter 1, Paul says, I'm an apostle for the faith of those who are chosen by God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the apostle Paul says, I thank God that He chose you from the beginning for salvation. Colossians 3.12, as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. 1 Peter chapter 1, to those saints scattered abroad, chosen of God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Romans 8, Paul calls us His elect. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Romans 9 is all about the doctrine of election. 2 John chapter 1, the apostle John writes, the elder, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. Here's this little personal letter tucked away at the back of the New Testament. You hardly ever read it. You hardly ever study it. I never preach on it. And yet the Apostle John opens this letter by saying, to the chosen lady. Friends, that is the comfort and the freedom with which the early church used the doctrine of election. They referred to each other as the elect. 
writing to some unnamed lady, he calls her the chosen lady. Would it be odd to you if I referred to my wife as my chosen bride? She is my elect wife, Deidre. Would you pray for my elect friend, Dave? And have you met my chosen brother, Chad? Sounds odd, doesn't it? It just shows you how far we have come to where this doctrine is so uncomfortable for us to reference. It wasn't like that in the early church. To the chosen lady and her children whom I love and true. This was something that for the early church was precious, which is why it's all over the New Testament. Now, the doctrine of election deserves our attention for a few reasons, and I'm just going to close by giving you three of them. First of all, this whole doctrine deserves our attention and our study because it is a pride-destroying, humbling doctrine. It destroys human pride. Because I am reminded that this election has nothing to do with anything that's in me. It's all by His grace. He chose Jim Osmond in Christ before the foundation of the world and granted me that grace in Him. Why? I have no idea. Am I better than you? No. Am I better than the guy that's not here this morning that will perish in his sins for all of eternity? No. Am I more spiritual? Am I more spiritually inclined? Am I less blinded by my sin or less dead in my trespasses and sins? Maybe I'm just sick and the other guy was dead in his trespasses and sins. Is that it? No. But yet there are some who teach and there are some who believe that election worked like this. God looked down through time and he saw you and he saw the choice that you would make and so he chose you on that basis. And he said, yeah, I'll sit by. That was a good choice. I'll go along with that. That's what election is. The problem with that, friends, is that that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture never teaches that in a single text of the New Testament that talks about the subject of election. Not one. Never uses a word. Never implies it. Never infers it. You cannot get that out of Scripture. That is an idea that you and I must have in our minds as we approach the Bible and we insert it into the text to make us feel comfortable. Maybe, I don't know why we would do that, but there are some people who believe that. The New Testament doesn't teach that. Furthermore, the New Testament argues against that because the Apostle Paul spends all of Romans 9 saying that is not how it worked. It is not according to the man who wills. It's not according to the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And he argues against it. Uses Jacob and Esau as an illustration. Had nothing to do with either one of them, Paul says. God chose. It's the same way with us. He did not look down through time and choose you and just reaffirm that wise, wonderful, spiritual, good choice that you made. If that's how it works, friends, then what would be different if God never elected anybody? The answer? Nothing. I mean, if, if we would have chosen Him anyway, then if God never chose us, what would be different? No, oh, we would have chosen Him anyway. We didn't need His election. We didn't need His choice. We didn't need that grace. We would have chosen Him anyway. So what does God's election accomplish? Answer? Absolutely nothing. And so since it accomplishes nothing, why should I thank God for it? Yet the Apostle Paul says, I thank God because He chose you from the beginning for salvation. If God's election doesn't accomplish anything, if I would have chosen Him anyway, then why didn't Paul just thank the Thessalonians? Thank you for believing. Thank you for choosing God. And thank you for flying southwest today. Yet that's not how the Apostle Paul approaches it. I give praise to God because He chose you. If you would have chosen Him anyway, then forget thanking God for it. He had nothing to do with it. You would have chosen Him 
even if he never bothered electing you. Friends, that doesn't destroy human pride. That feeds human pride. It feeds it. We feed on that because we desperately want something in our salvation that we can take credit for. Believing, repenting, seeing, understanding, thinking clearly, choosing, believing, having faith, doing something, persevering to the end. And yet Scripture says it's, it's all His work. Beginning to end, it's all His work. That is a humbling doctrine. Second, it is a God-glorifying doctrine. That's why it deserves our attention. Not only because it's humbling, because it is God-glorifying. Luke is basically answering this question. What differentiates those who believed and those who rejected the gospel in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch? What made the difference? Well, those who rejected did so by their own choice. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. But those who believed, what made them different? Luke answers the question. They were appointed to eternal life, and so they believed. That's what makes the difference. What is it that differs you from the man who never will get saved? It's the grace of God, not you. How arrogant of us to think that we can only believe this if we understand how it all cashes out. How arrogant of us to think that God set His grace on me because He saw in me something wonderful and something great. Friends, when God looked down through time and He looked at Jim Osmond, He did not see anything worthy of salvation. Nothing at all. A wretch. Spiritually ruined. Dead in his trespasses and sins. Unable, unwilling to do anything for eternal life. And yet in spite of my sin, he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's humbling. If your idea of election honors you instead of God for election, or if it causes you to be prideful because of your election, you've misunderstood it. It's a humbling doctrine. It is a God-honoring doctrine. And third, it is a motivating doctrine. Why preach? Why teach? Why evangelize? Why do missions? Why come to church? Why share your faith? You know why? Because God has His elect and He has promised that He'll save them. Hey, I'll tell you what, man. That's motivating. That's encouraging. That is strengthening. Because on this coming Friday night, when I look out at a sea of faces here for uh, or the two weeks from this Friday, when I look out at a sea of faces for our Awana Awards Night, and I see all of these parents and so many people who don't know the Lord, and I stand up to share the Gospel, the only thing that gives me any motivation, any encouragement at all to preach the Gospel, is the understanding that God has His elect, and that He is calling them out, and that you and I get to be the voices that He uses to call His sheep. And we have the confidence that His sheep will hear His voice, and they will come to Him, and He will give to them eternal life. That's motivating. It's motivating. James White says this, The person who proclaims the gospel with purity and power can trust that God will save his elect. Likewise, we know that others will laugh and mock no matter how clearly or how forcefully we communicate the truth. That's true. You see, friends, the effectiveness of the gospel does not rest in the cleverness of the message, a PowerPoint presentation, an overhead presentation, entertaining people, hooking them in, getting them here, the wittiness or the messenger or the power or the presentation or all of the yelling and screaming. It has nothing to do with any of that. You know what it has to do with? There is only one thing that can change the heart of a rebellious sinner, and that is for God to make His grace effective by His Word through the power of His Spirit. And you and I have nothing to do with that. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the non-elect are. It's not our concern. 
Our concern is to preach the gospel of Christ, to take his name to the ends of the earth, to share Christ with everybody that he gives us opportunity to share Christ with, and trust that God will use us to call out his sheep and to call his elect to himself. Why? Because I have the confidence that as many as are appointed to eternal life, believe. And so I must beg of them to be reconciled to God. Understanding, they bear the responsibility for the choice they make, but it is God who appoints some to eternal life. If you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, why do you preach? Why do you teach? Why do you go on the missionary journeys? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you call upon men and women to believe and to repent and to turn from their sin? I know what the Apostle Paul would say. I know what he would say because he already said it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says this, Timothy, for this reason I endure all things. Writing from a prison, mind you. Writing from a prison, his last letter, about to lose his head, the Apostle Paul says, for this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain salvation, and with it, Eternal glory. Why do you do it, Paul? I do it for the elect. Why do you preach, Paul? For the sake of those who are chosen. Why do you teach? Why do you minister? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you call upon men and women to repent? Why do you endure the beatings and the shipwrecking and all of that stuff that taxes you? Why have you laid your life out? For this reason, Timothy, it's for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may come to salvation, and with it, eternal glory. Friends, this is the most awe-inspiring, humbling, God-honoring, and motivating doctrine in all of the Bible. And so I would ask you this morning, pour contempt on your pride, honor the God who granted you grace in eternity past, and serve Him with motivation and with confidence trusting that He will use you to minister and to call out His elect. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the grace that was granted to us. And we are reminded again this morning, God, that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. We are dependent upon You 100% for everything that we have. And Lord, if it depended upon us to choose You or to select You or to or to think clearly about things or to make wise assessments on eternal verities, then we would have perished in our sins for all of eternity. And yet in Christ you have granted to us that grace. And we thank you that you changed our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. That you granted to us repentance. That you gave us the faith to believe. We thank you that we are among those whom the Father has given to the Son, who will believe, who will behold Him, and who will be raised up on the last day. We honor you this morning, Father, and we praise you and we thank you because you have chosen us from the beginning for salvation. And I pray that you would use that understanding to motivate us to serve others and to preach and proclaim this gospel which is able to save us to the uttermost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.